this man of the year. He's coaching this thing. Amen. Um, I'm trying something new here. Got this new little gadget. My thingy. It, it goes too fast. Anyway, um, Acts 19, uh, 11 through 22. I'm not going to read that whole thing this morning, but it's, this is the passage that we've been sort of, you know, basing this whole series on, this four-week series talking about sickness and healing and things like that. Uh, I just want to read the first two verses of that. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. And then it goes on. And I think I may have put, up the, put the slides up with all of it. I'm just going to skip through this. But it goes on to talk about some other things that were happening, some guys that didn't know Christ trying to, to um, minister in the name of Christ and they got their butts kicked, kind of. But anyway, but I want to tell you a story. I want to start off telling you a story this morning. I had a friend who was a Presbyterian pastor, a very good friend of mine. Uh, and at one point, his parents got caught up in the Christian Science Church, Mary Baker Eddy and all that. Um, if you know anything about it, uh, it's an interesting lot, right? Um, the Christian Science Church doesn't believe... Uh, in using medicine or going to the doctor. Instead, they believe a person's faith can and will heal anything. And his mother, at that time, they got involved with that, uh, contracted cancer. And so at the advice of her church, uh, they didn't go to the doctor. She didn't, she didn't uh, although it would have been treatable. It seems like it, it was a, a cancer that would have been treatable. Long story short, she died. I was there that morning staying at his house when she passed away. And my friend went to the funeral of his own mother, very angry with the Christian scientist who sat next to him because in his opinion, their theology had killed his mother. I would agree. He sat next to a man with an open cancerous lesion on his head who had refused medical treatment himself. And it was just too much. He he came home just really upset Uh, Now, the interesting thing is that he believes in healing, right? But his views on faith didn't disregard or discount the much-needed knowledge and, you know, work of doctors in the world, right? It's an unfortunate story, right? There was another story in 1983 um, in Christianity Today. It was an article uh, reported by Dr. Paul Brand about a family named the Gilmores. And this is what it said. It said, David Gilmore told about an illness of his 15-month-old son, Dustin Graham Gilmore, which began in April of 1978. And at at first, the child came down with flu-like symptoms, and the Gilmores uh, took him to their church, and the pastor prayed for him. And members of the church believed that faith alone heals any disease and that to look anywhere else for help, uh, for example, to medical doctors, would demonstrate a lack of faith in God. So Gilmore and his wife followed the church's advice and simply prayed for their son. And over the next weeks, uh, the next few weeks, they prayed faithfully as his temperature climbed, prayed when they noticed he no longer responded to sounds, and prayed harder when he went blind. And on the morning of May 15, 1978, the day after the pastor preached an especially rousing sermon about faith, the Gilmores went into their son's room and found his body a blue color, and he was still, and he was dead. 
And again, they prayed because their church also believed the power of prayer can raise the dead. Um, an autopsy, they, he didn't, he didn't come, come back to life. And an autopsy revealed that the infant died from an easily, form, easily treated form of uh, meningitis. Sorry, I'm like a little tongue-tied this morning. I don't know why. And that is also an unfortunate story. Really hard stories to hear, right? And the shame about this is that in the issues of healing and sickness and things like that, a few stories have dominated the Christian mind and uh, created extremes in thinking. Uh, But again, as we often teach about Jesus here at 6-8, is that we believe he's somewhere in the middle of these things, right? That where our faith should be centered and our faith should be centered on him and nothing else, right? And we believe here that aggressive faith is good, but when faith becomes a tool uh, to manipulate the power of God, it becomes destructive. In other words, when faith's taken off of Jesus and placed on our abilities as feeble human vessels, it ceases to be a faith which is solid and should be actually relabeled as pride or self-righteousness. We've looked already at two theological roadblocks uh, of healing and, and power against demonic activity. That The first week was the concept of sanctification through sickness. We spoke against that in the negative. Uh, and then last week we talked about the idea of divine determinism, that God orchestrates every little event in history and world and all that kind of stuff, and that he's got to be responsible for our sicknesses and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we, we talked about that. Uh, today we're going to look at the third roadblock, and that is the faith formula. The faith formula, that's what we're going to call it at least. And this, this is the formula in some form of not only the proponents or, 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 or um, the Christian scientists, but also the proponents of the health and wealth or the prosperity gospel. Uh, sometimes that is found in the Pentecostal church. Uh, however, many Pentecostals uh, would also reject this notion or eje- reject it in an ex- extreme form. And it's not my intention to sit here and bash my Pentecostal brothers and sisters. I have many good friends that are solid Christians, Pentecostals. I, you know, I, I have nothing wrong. I don't have any problem with Pentecostalism. Uh, we have much to learn from our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. As a matter of fact, they are great evangelists. And... Um, we have our mistakes as well in our own walks, and that much is certain. So any criticism we do with all humility, right? But the faith formula defines faith as the human will to believe. Let me say that twice. The human will to believe. And the dominant feature is its human-centeredness. Its focus ceases to be on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, shifting to the individual's ability to believe strongly, right? Thomas Smale, a Scottish theologian. I would like to hear him talk to Scottish guys talking. That's kind of fun. But uh, he laments this human-centered orientation of, of Arminius and Charles Finney, two men that we can trace this thinking back to. And he says, this thinking is deeply engraved in modern Pentecostalism out of its background in Methodist holiness teaching. The baptism of the Spirit and our reception of his gifts is dependent upon our, our fulfillment of the conditions God lays down. I had this argument in Indonesia with one of my church planters that, you know, you, that 
you, the, uh, the baptism of the Spirit argument, you know, that you had to do certain things to be baptized by the Spirit. And I, I just didn't believe that, right? Um, but he says, so let me say that again. The baptism of the Spirit and the reception of His gifts is dependent upon our fulfillment of the conditions that God lays down. If we know enough, repent enough, pray enough, at the end of end, we shall have them. But if not, we shall not, right? It's an act, if you, if you think about it, if you look at it closely, it's actually a form of law masquerading as uh, faith. Another attempt at self-righteousness for uh, the people of God. Self-righteousness before God and self-righteousness before others. It proposes to build up faith, but it actually destroys faith. It says if you fulfill God's conditions by believing enough, God will heal. Or God will heal through you or whatever. If you don't fulfill His conditions by believing enough, He won't. It says failure to be healed or to heal someone, right, must always come back to a lack of faith of somebody. And in the end, what happens in these issues of healing? A person is racked with guilt since they can never be good enough. I never have enough faith, right? Either to be healed or heal somebody else. I just don't have enough faith. And the focus is actually always on the self, right? And this teaching focuses almost solely on the benefits to the individual and doesn't address the depravity of humankind at all. To them, it sounds negative. It sounds, you know, wrong or negative or depressive to think of yourself as unworthy before a holy God or counterintuitive to think that they might actually be self-righteousness and therefore all their works are as filthy rags, right? Useless before God, Isaiah 64, 6. However, like Calvin once said, man cannot, without sacrilege, claim for himself even a crumb of righteousness for just so much is plucked and taken away from the glory of God's righteousness. In other words, as soon as the focus becomes on anything but Jesus, anything but Christ and His righteousness, I've lost sight of the gospel. I've kind of gone off course, right? Scripture tells us that it's by grace through faith that we are saved, and that even is a gift of God. That's a gift of God. Amen for that. Because I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel, (laughs) right? But I got a sense of humor about it. It's not by my works. It's not how I got in the door. It's not what I did to get, get right with God or anything like that. I can't boast about that at all. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Peter 2 says we've been called to the hope of salvation so that we may declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, 9. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, Paul says that every part of our salvation rests in Christ that we may glory in him alone, not in ourselves. In essence, if we revert back to works, go backwards, doing something to move God by how well we do it, right? We eclipse His righteousness and we place ourselves in the light of glory. We're robbing it from Him, or trying to at least. 
However, Romans 3.25 reveals to us the reason God bestows his righteousness on us in Christ is to show his own righteousness to the world. To any extent that we seek to impress God or impress others, even with our faith, we stand in the way of him. It's not faith any longer when we're doing that. It's it's not faith any longer at all, but it's self-reliance, which wavers and varies and flies up and down. It hesitates, it vacillates. You just can't nail it down because it's all focused on the self, this imperfect being. And in comparison, faith in Jesus strengthens the mind with constant, like, deep assurance and perfect confidence. It gives it a place to rest and to plant our feet. The faith formula says three things. Firstly, it holds to a strict causality between faith and healing, right? To be clear, that means if I have enough faith, I will be healed or I can heal others, right? And in short, human faith is a prerequisite to make that happen. Now, it's true that Jesus in the New Testament, when you read through the, the, the Gospels, right? He said to some, go, your faith has healed you, right? He did say that. Or he said, uh, it says that he looked and he saw that they had faith to be healed. We get that. We, we acknowledge that. That's there. However, we do notice that when you study the healing and the miracle text in the New Testament, there isn't a consistent tie nor a prerequisite for faith in those passages for miracles or healing to happen. It's just not there. Matthew 8, 28 through 34, the healing of two demon-possessed men. No evidence of faith in this passage outside of the demonic entities having belief. Right? Matthew chapter 9, 18 through 26, the people laugh, you know, at Jesus when he says, ah, oh, she's, she's going to get up again. And, and, and they laugh, and, and this girl is dead, and the father may show some faith, but we can't extrapolate from that story that this healing is an end result of his belief. It's just not there. Mark 9.24, a man with de- with, uh, who was demon-possessed uh, or with a demon-possessed son says, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. Don't you feel like that all the time? I believe. I, help me with my unbelief. I feel like that every time I pray over somebody that's sick. Right? Luke 7, 11 through 17, out of sheer compassion, Jesus raises a boy from the dead without any discussion beforehand. No sign of faith. Luke 8, 22 through 25, Jesus calms the storm, and then he asks, where is your faith? Because apparently they didn't have any, right? <laughs> I wouldn't have. Luke 13, uh, 10 through 17, a woman is healed on the spot only at the prompting of Jesus. Luke 4, 31 through 36, Jesus drives out an evil spirit without prompting. John chapter 4, 43 through 54, this is a healing of a child that seems to produce deeper faith or belief in his father and then in others. John 5, 1 through 15, the guy doesn't even know who Jesus is when he's asked by the Pharisees. John uh, 9, 1 through 12, a, a man is healed of his blindness. And when the Pharisees say to him, you know, we know Jesus is a sinner, the guy says, whether he's a sinner or not, I have no idea, but I can see. That's all he says. That's verse 25 in that passage, by the way. John 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead. You know that story. It's a very famous story. 
And there's a mixture of belief and unbelief in that story. And, it's, and he seems to raise Lazarus from the dead to bolster their faith, to bolster their belief. And also just because he loved Lazarus. Some had faith, some didn't, some very little, and sometimes it was very difficult, he said, you know, to, to uh, heal someone. Mark chapter 9, verse 29, he said that. Jesus heals some people who, have, who seem to have no faith at all, some who do, and some who have like plenty of doubt. Jesus did miracles of feeding thousands without any inclination of faith from those present. He just did it. And it actually seems to suggest that they didn't really have any faith about this. The disciples seem surprised that at the name of Christ, demonic spirits flee in Luke chapter 10. Surprise seems to indicate to me that that there's a lack of faithful expectation on their part and their experience seems to build up their faith. Ken Blue uh, states that most healing is incremental. We don't think about it that way. We expect an instant result all the time, right? You know, if we're going to do healing, then we definitely want to see an instant result all the time. But he says it, it is incremental over time with consistent prayer. And many times he himself, when he's praying over people for healing, has lacked any clear faith in doing so, and the person was healed anyway. See, Jesus' work isn't bound by our faith. Yet he's pleased when we do have faith, and he's pleased when we're obedient and we engage in these things. So the question is, where's, what's our faith in, right? That's the real question. Is, it, is my faith in some emotional display? Like I, if I pray louder, that'll make a difference, right? If I pray more eloquently, that'll make a difference. Is it in some emotional display, conjuring belief, conjuring faith in order to manipulate the power of God? Do we need to show God? (laughs) Think about how absurd this is. Do we need to show God the author of our faith? How strong our faith is? Don't you think he knows that? Or do we simply need to remember our righteousness lies in and is dependent on Christ alone. That's the only thing that our faith is in. The truth is that God heals and God delivers and he isn't dependent on my feelings nor bound by my minuscule belief. Let me just point out that I get up here many Sundays, well, maybe not many, uh, some Sundays, I, won't, I don't want to incriminate myself too much, not feeling that I have a great walk right now or feeling very far from God. Does that discount my words? No, it does not. Because you heard me pray. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you, not Jason speak to you. There is something weird going on. The Spirit of God is moving. Amen. Right? Amen. I don't control that. You don't control that. Right? And God will speak to you even when I'm not doing great. I hope. Right? (laughs) I hope. I don't know where I am now, but um, (laughs) lost myself. Um, But he's not he is not bound by my minuscule belief. He's not bound by how well I'm doing. God's people should have faith. We should. We should be active in our faith. We should have faith. And that is where the subtlety of the lie is found. Right? It really is. John Wimber, 
who was vineyard guy. If you've been around the vineyard, you'll hear his name quite often. He grew up and, you know, taught at a seminary that had the theological view that miracles and healings and gifts of the Spirit and all that stuff ceased after the apostle. They, they were no longer uh, happening or, or practiced and all that kind of stuff. But he, he started to see that as he studied the Scriptures, there's no scriptural evidence for that view at all. There's really not. And to test this, he starts to pray over people that are sick. He starts to pray healing over people. And he prayed for no less than 200 people. You know what happened? Nothing. Nada. Not a one person was healed. Right? I would be pretty discouraged. And he was. He was very discouraged. And, you know, a lady comes up to him and she says, can you pray for me to be healed? And I I don't really remember what she was healed of. But he did so very reluctantly. And he admittedly said he didn't expect any results because he hadn't seen any so far. But he had been obedient to do it. And she was healed on the spot. And it, and it changed his life. There used to be a commercial where the, there's a bunch of guys talking in different situations. I can't even remember what the commercial was for. But they're like in a barber shop or an office or out on the street or whatever. And they're intently focused on their conversation together until uh, a beautiful woman walks by. And they stop. And they just kind of like their heads swivel. Right? And then as soon as she rounds the corner or whatever, they resume talking. It's kind of like us, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of like our faith life. That's what we're like with Jesus sometimes. You know, intent on him, oh, we're like really into the conversation, and then something catches our eyes, and our focus gets diverted. We just kind of go off track. The problem is, sometimes those things which draw our gaze away from Jesus are the exact benefits of life in Jesus. It's a really strange thing. And as soon as it happens, the focus actually isn't on that thing. It's actually on the self. It's on me and what I can do to attain it, right? We would do well to make sure that our faith isn't dependent on self, but only on Jesus. To, con- to continually realize that our works are worthless. God's righteousness has been imputed to us freely. Now, if we say our works are worthless, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do them. Right? We should strive to have faith in Jesus, definitely, but not in our ability to move God by an emotional show of faith. That's not what we're trying to do. Some of the most powerful prayers I've heard uttered when I've seen God move are just somebody just said something very simply, right? As good as it looks, right? As good as it looks, it does nothing but damage to us and to others when we, when we act like that. Here's, here's a worthy quote. False teachers invite people to the master's table because of what's on it not because they love the master, right? False teachers invite people to the master's table because of what's on it, not because they love the master. Let us be adoring the master and let's not be diverted by what we want him to give to us, right? Secondly, the faith formula says to us that divine blessings such as health and prosperity are constantly and fully available to all Christians all the time, right? Uh, Joel Osteen, this is his teaching, right? I'll just say it outright. Joel Osteen, I would not read a book by Joel, Joel Osteen. 
Really nice guy. Smiles a lot when he preaches. I can learn something from that. But I, I don't agree with his theology. And it's, and it's, and it's twisted because it's so, there's so much truth. But it's just off a little bit. Just off a little bit. All right? So fully available to Christians all the time. However, when we hold to that thinking, we're only left with two options when a person isn't healed or we don't see God moving, things don't work out as we, we have prayed for, right? And those are guilt before God and then anger towards God. Our guilt turns eventually into anger towards Him. Those feelings come in succession after a long period of self-loathing of me not being good enough, not believing enough, or not having enough faith. Pride manifests itself in such insidious ways. Often self-centered pride can look extremely pious, right? Extremely pious on the outside, very good on the outside. It, it wears the cloak of faith and it bandies the name about, of Jesus about very liberally. If you lovingly try to confront that kind of a person, though, what do you get labeled as? You get labeled as the person that lacks faith. Oh, well, you just don't have enough faith, Right? When we strip it all off, it's all about the person, and it's not faith in Jesus. Faith in a humanistic ability to conjure enough faith. Back to works-based righteousness, faith becomes the tool to manipulate God's power. And what we find out is, and this is very important, the faith formula is contractual and not covenantal. Right? Contractual and not covenantal. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that in a contractual relationship, it says if I live up to my side of the bargain, then you are obliged, you're bound to live up to your side of the bargain. If I pray hard enough with enough faith, then you have to heal. Or you have to, like, let me win the lottery. That's what I'd be praying for. Forget all your healing. I'm going to go win the lottery. Right? Doesn't work. Right? We've, we've tried it, right? <laughs> we've tried it. It negates grace. It negates grace. The comple- it negates the complexities of the spiritual realm and it negates the lordship of Jesus Christ on our lives. It waits for the proper quality and quantity of, of faith from God's people in order to move God's hands. And this view demands a certain amount of faith, right? Or work from his people before God releases his blessings. In a contractual relationship, God is boss and not father. Do you hear that? In a contractual relationship, God is boss and not father. He is therefore bound by the employee-employer relationship. He has to work on our part, right? Right? And this accounts for a lot of this show of emotionalism in, in sort of faith healing stuff. Since God's believed to respond to our work rather than simply out of his grace. God's basically reduced to this Babylonian f- fertility God, subordinated to the, uh, the offerings of his people, of his creatures. And if your faith is strong enough, you can name it and claim it. Right? You can name it and claim it. And that is a very naive belief in the kingdom of God that it has come in full now, which we talked about last week. It hasn't come in full now. It's come partially. 
It discounts the partial and provisional nature of the kingdom of God this side of the second coming of Christ. There will come a day when God's kingdom will come in full, but that's not happened yet. It is among us right now, but it's not fully come. And what we find in that kind of a teaching is that suffering isn't a welcome word in that theological position. It's not at all, since suffering isn't a part of the kingdom of life, kingdom life now. But Paul definitely says that we share in Christ's suffering now. Romans 8.17. He says that we rejoice in our sufferings. Colossians 1.24. Amen. Thirdly, thirdly, <laughs> I, I were a college student. Um, thirdly, the faith formula pr- proposes that health and wealth can be instantly appropriated by God's children if they know enough and they believe enough at, at any time. But... In Hebrews 11, if you read that chapter, 32 through 39 especially, we notice that some, by faith, won very great victories. They did well, while others suffered and died. Right? We can't make false promises to people. Immediate vindication and, and, uh, and, and uh, total victory this side of the second coming of Christ and all these things aren't promised to us. They're never promised to us. But we have, it's all been saved for the future age, right? The, the end of the age. Hebrews chapter 10, 35 and 36 speaks of that. We're held in bondage to decay right now. Romans 8, 21. And we will be, continue to be held that way until the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, 23. But there is no condemnation for God's people. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But we inwardly groan as we eagerly await the adoption as sons and daughters and redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. I love the gospel because it is so realistic. It doesn't deny my pain. It doesn't deny my struggle, right? It doesn't give false promises and all that kind of stuff. But it does give hope. We live in God's healing power today as we await the full consummation of that reality in the future. When we're not healed, when I pray over somebody and they're not healed on the spot, there is still hope. There is still hope. I prayed over uh, Belinda's sister this week who, is, who has cancer. It was a wonderful, beautiful time just to pray and love somebody. At the very least, I want, her to, I want to walk away and have her feel loved. The love of Christ. That's at the very least. I can at least do that. If God heals her, more power to him. If he doesn't, I I can't explain that. But I did it. I wanted to do it, right? Thomas Smale, again, he says, when the prayer made in faith isn't answered and the healing for which many have sought doesn't come, we aren't to look for someone to accuse in failure of faith. Rather, we're to remember that besides faith, There's hope. Hope has to do with God's promises, which are still future and hidden, just as faith has to do with God's promises, which are here and now. To the person who's believed for today but hasn't seen the answer come today, there comes a call to hope. Hope says tomorrow also is God's. Enough has happened already to assure you that the rest is on the way. Amen. So the mature Christian lives under grace even in this issue of healing. It's Christ's work. It's not ours. 
Any glory to be had is Jesus, right? We realize that there are complicated and unexplainable issues that surround uh, all this stuff, this side of the second coming of Christ. We don't fully understand it all, but it doesn't make us inactive. So we hold on to hope for the future, even when we may not see his power manifested in a certain situation right now, how we want to see it, right? We also hold on to the love of Christ for us and everybody else around us right now. Romans 8, 38 through 39. The love of Jesus, right? Therefore, the mature Christian acts in faith in Christ. We act in faith in Christ, not using our faith as a manipulative tool to gain favor of anybody and especially not of God. We realize the effects of a fallen world which are still evident all around us and even sometimes within us. When we pray and somebody isn't healed, we don't respond with guilt or anger as if our eyes are only focused on the results, but we respond with hope for the future and we trust in the character and the ultimate goodness and love and and power and purposes of God as if our eyes are always focused on the master, right? Ken Blue said, any gospel of healing which can't be spoken with confidence and received as comfort at the deathbed isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we pray for healing, but sometimes people don't get healed. But what we pray and what we give them has to be filled with the hope of the future, no matter if that end comes. See, the prosperity gospel can't be preached at the deathbed. It can't. With comfort and confidence, it can't. Since none of this fits into that theology. It doesn't. The faith formula is there only to get results from me. It is a self-centered endeavor about, you know, about the individual, not about the glory of Christ. It's contractual, not covenantal. In many passages, we see that faith preceded healing. Yet, as we said earlier, sometimes the results weren't a result of faith at all or sometimes very little faith or actually it produced faith in people. So the end of this teachings, uh, the end effect of this teaching has been that many equate any talk of healing with the fringe extremists in the church of the health and wealth gospel or the faith formula teachers of the prosperity gospel teachers. And so some have gone to the other extreme denying that healing happens at all. So one denies medical attention and one only trusts in medical attention. And that's unfortunate. It really is. Since we do have a God who heals and delivers and wants his people in prayer about these things. He wants us to be engaged. God doesn't uh, want us to throw out our minds and deny the healings of the uh, power of the medical community. There's no way I wouldn't send my kid to the doctor or go myself if I had something wrong with me he's in the middle between these two extremes he he always is he's the god of grace a father who loves the god of hope and the god of power and we are in a covenantal relationship with him we've got nothing to prove we are not in a contractual relationship with god at all it's not dependent on our level of faith our emotion or how well we do it. We remember that we're not God. He is, <laughs> right? I am far from that. Our faith is important. God desires our obedience in these matters. Yet our faith needs to be centered on Christ alone 
and nothing else. He wants us to be active, but not limited. He's not limited by us. We have to let God be God. Our task is, in all these things, and all these issues, is to keep our eyes focused on the Jesus, focused on the Master, not on the benefits of, the, of what's on the table in front of us, not on results in a fallen world. It's a journey of faith fraught with victories and defeats and mistakes, and I've made a lot of them, and I will make more in the future. But grace allows room for all that. So let's not be fearful of our mistakes. Let's not let our mistakes hold us back from being interactive children of God in these matters because we are children of God in Christ. We are saved by grace, not by works, so that none of us can boast. There's nothing which can separate us from the love of Christ. That is the hope of the gospel, right? Not even my own misguidance and my own mistakes. Even when my theology is not perfect. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your gift. Your gift, your your wonderful willingness to go to the cross for us. The extent of that love is beyond our understanding. And we, like, you just breathe life back into our bodies and we are so grateful for that. And I know we wrestle under your hand. We wrestle sometimes trying to figure this all out, try, trying to prove ourselves over and over again. I just pray that you would bring peace to our lives and our hearts, that you would let that passive righteousness of the gospel of Jesus rest on our hearts and our minds and let it make sense and let it govern our bodies and govern our minds and govern our choices and govern us in a way that just gives us freedom, freedom from never having to prove ourselves to anybody and including you, that we can just be active in your kingdom, that we can be loving, passionate people that bring the truth of the gospel to others and pray for healing for them, and that sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't, but it's not up to us. We just leave all of that to you. So Father, we wrap up our pride sort of in a little box. We tie it up with a bow and we leave it at the foot of your cross. We leave it right there. We ask that you would take that as a sacrifice of ourselves so that we could just be free. 